So I've always prided myself on offering the products that tick all of the boxes that everyone else is ticking, but then don't just slap on some ridiculous price as well. However, when it comes to packaging, that's difficult because sustainable packaging is not something that I can control the price of. Hi, I'm Chloe from Zenbox and I'm on a mission to get brands talking about how post-purchase operations affect the customer experience. And importantly, how to deliver on promises that mean you create loyalty that drives repeat purchases. Welcome to After the Buy Button, the show that focuses on post-purchase operations to help you improve your customer experience. I'm really excited to welcome today's guest, Anna Brightman. Anna is co-founder of UpCircle, the beauty brand that uses commonly discarded products such as coffee grounds to create everything from body scrubs to facial serums. So Anna, welcome. Can you tell us how this all started and how the brand has gone from strength to strength? Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Yes. Uh, So as mentioned, I'm the co-founder of UpCircle. We have been in existence now for five years. Definitely feels like a lot longer than that. <laughs> been a bit of a roller coaster, but yeah, only five years old. But we've seen sort of tremendous growth in that in that time where we're selling hundreds of thousands of units per year across the globe. Even for example, in 2020, our, our US retailers and sales almost took over our UK, and that was just in in, in one year. So it's it's a busy, busy time. <laughs> Our concept's a little different to any other skincare brand, which is that we are focused on the circular economy. So every single formulation that we put out into a skincare product is made with a core byproduct ingredient that's been sourced from varied other industries, largely the food industry. So coffee, as you mentioned, is a great example of that. We've saved over 300 tonnes of coffee grounds from local cafes and restaurants by turning those into exfoliators. But we also source nine other byproducts, so things like powdered fruit stones like olive stones that are byproducts from creation of olive oil or argan shells that are left over by the argan oil industry that we use in our face moisturizer. Uh, We also use chamomile stem extracts and chai spices that have been brewed to make chai syrups, even maple bark extract. So huge variation of ingredients that we're using in our skincare formulations. I think we tick also a lot of the other tick boxes that people are looking for with brands at the moment. So yes, there is this real focus on the circular economy and reutilizing would-be waste ingredients, but we're also vegan, cruelty-free, palm oil-free, handmade in the UK, organic, all of those other things as well. So lots going on at the same time, lots of challenges. But I think that this real unique ethos is what's made us so popular so quickly and become a bit of a household name by disrupting the beauty industry so much. Absolutely. Um, yeah, you sort of mentioned the other product points of being vegan and everything, and that definitely talks to the consumer and everything that, that people are looking for now, especially for those, those direct-to-consumer brands that have that story and that narrative to tell. Um, and I think it's, it's definitely resonating by mm. the success of the company as you've just illustrated. So um, yeah, and you know, I was kind of checking out the website and everything, your brand is definitely, you know, focusing on consumer first. What are, the, what are they looking for, these trends and, and needs of uh, demands of the modern consumer? Yeah. Your website makes it very easy to buy, <laughs> to buy things, as I can attest to, as I, you know, <laughs> went on there and, and it's just, it's just very easy, you know, to, to make an order, to place an order and everything is up to expectations like you mm. said you know it's, it's being led by by the consumer 
So yeah, with that, I kind of wanted to focus on the the post purchase experience and and how that is continued through you know after the buy button. So actually, to to focus on your packaging because you're also plastic free, which is again another one of these these consumer demands, which is you know true to your brand ethos. So you've got two types of packaging really: the actual product packaging and then the the packaging for delivery. Mm-hmm. So. Could you break those down for us in in how you went about sourcing plastic-free packaging and what challenges did you face there? How how hard was it to kind of get all of that set up? Sure. I mean, packaging is something that I find myself talking about every single day (laughs) and it's probably one of my biggest frustrations as a brand founder operating in the world of sustainability because I think Mm. what you find is that there is no correct answer. (laughs) You can do or, or make decisions that you think are the best and be able to reason those based on whatever criteria you've been using. But then someone will come along and say, oh, but what about this? And you're like, oh, God, OK, well, are we back to square one then? Is actually plastic better than glass or is aluminium better than, uh, you know, cardboard or whatever it might be? And then, as you've mentioned, the most important thing here is that you are never sacrificing the user experience or how the product is supposed to function, because mm. that is that is kind of the number one. People are buying your product because it needs to do something. So if the packaging gets in the way of that, uh, then it doesn't matter how sustainable that packaging is because your audience is going to be diminished massively and therefore your brand impact is going to be massively diminished, etc. So there are a million things going on at the same time. And it's very challenging to get it 100% right when you yourself are not a packaging manufacturer. Like I, <laughs> I don't make packaging. I am restricted by what is out there on the market and the price point of those things as well. Because obviously I've mentioned all of these many tick boxes, the vegan, cruelty-free, et cetera. But for me also, I was 23 when I launched the business. One of my main frustrations with making sustainable ethical purchases was that they were at this premium price point that I just quite honestly couldn't afford, which again cut me off to Mm. uh, most brands operating in the sustainable field. So I've always prided myself on offering the products that tick all of the boxes that everyone else is ticking, but then don't just slap on some ridiculous price as well. However, when it comes to packaging, that's difficult because sustainable packaging is not something that I can control the price of. So so that's definitely one challenge. The decision making that we've gone with is largely down to how easy it is to recycle the materials that we use in our packaging at home. So Sure, there are some amazing initiatives like TerraCycle or, you know, specialist recycling banks that work with certain materials or bioplastics is another hot topic at the moment, but essentially it's still plastic. And, you know, no amount of clever marketing can disguise that fact. So we've kept clear of that. Um, And so we're focusing on things like glass or aluminium that at home in your kitchen already by your local council, these materials will already be recycled. So yes, granted, we've got this eco story and this focus on sustainability. So a lot of our audience will already have that care for Mm -hmm. how they're disposing of the packaging that that they have around the products that they purchase. But we are trying really to be a mainstream brand and to make sustainability mainstream and to kind of challenge the status quo. And so what that does mean, and of course, the focus, therefore, as we've been discussing, is is user experience and, and high quality performing products. Uh, What that does mean, though, is that we will also have customers who like our brand just because of the quality of the products and don't care in the slightest about the sustainability piece. So 
we have to think about those people as well. And they are not going to go out of their way to recycle the packaging at some specialist plant or to mm. use, uh, you know, packaging return schemes or whatever it might be. So that's, that's kind of how we've gone about it. And I think it's, it's worked out pretty well. We do always have challenges with packaging that, that come up often after we've released the product. You can, you can do as much testing as you like, mm. but once you've released the product and start selling thousands and thousands of units of it, that's when you can really analyze feedback and analyze bugbears or, or customer issues. And so what I do think as a brand founder that we are very committed to doing is constantly evolving the products that are already released. So if mm-hmm. we see a packaging issue, okay, fine. Yeah, we've already released it, but that doesn't mean it's it's in the past. Let's yeah. go back, let's refine it and 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 try something new. Mm. That's a really important piece actually that, you know, it, it applies to a lot of different areas of e-commerce with that kind of continuous improvement. Like you don't just yeah set a product live on on your <laughs> on your website and then that's it done yeah but yeah and, and kind of like you said that when you have enough data really to see those trends it's kind of you know making sure that you're using that data in the right mm. way if there is a, a problem then you're able to go back and and address it that's a, a really important point that actually you make that there's a lot of different considerations you're trying to run a business it has to be you know the price point has to be right it has to be right for a lot of different areas of customers which is you know it, there's there's just a lot of considerations <laughs> uh yeah definitely and and i think you know like you said you've made it so that it is the easiest as possible for people to to recycle and i think mm. that's definitely yeah kind of speaks back to the customer experience and making sure that you deliver on on what's promised so um how so yeah my next question is sort of about how you're set up operationally to maintain that customer experience and deliver on what the brand promises obviously because like we said there's kind of those really strong messages there um and just to kind of set off on that from my own experience of of ordering from your brand it was you know it, it's it, you don't really get what you offer a lot which was free delivery on on how I think it might have been a, over a certain amount of how, mm-hmm. how much I ordered and then it turned up the next day. That I don't think that you get that a lot for free delivery. It's always, you know, it will turn up when it turns up. It's free. Mm, yeah. <laughs> don't complain. So, it's free. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, so yeah, how are you guys how how do you view that? How are you set up operationally? So this is a really interesting one as uh, someone who's obviously been a been been the brand since day one alongside my brother and watched it grow over the last five years. Each year is remarkably different from the year before. But there are a few things as a founder that I kind of cling on to and I'm very reluctant to sort of hand over because naturally you're used to doing everything. And with each new person that joins your team and as your brand grows, you have to just let things go and let other people take them over. So for the first, I would say at least three years, I actually packaged up every single order myself. And that was something that, yeah, it was extremely time consuming, (laughs) granted, but it's it's that control over what is so important, which is that actual touch point between you, the brand and the products and how that is received by the person who's bought it. And that's so important. Of course, as you scale, you learn that that's not going to be feasible and you have to look towards whether it's getting another big warehouse. Uh, we're London based, so that wasn't really an option for us. Or what we did do, which was choosing fulfillment partners that 
that suit what you're looking for, that can take that responsibility off you. Mm -hmm. But naturally, of course, you do end up having to not necessarily make sacrifices, but I can't write handwritten notes in every single order anymore, you know, and I used to do that. So what it then comes back to is it's more of a design task. So, okay, I can't write a handwritten note, but how can I get across to the customer that this is still very much something that I care about? I care how this parcel looks. I care that you've made an order and I'm thankful for that. I like I want you to uh, have an appreciation of the people behind the brand and the effort that's gone into this parcel, basically. Mm. So, you know, we have branded boxes that are actually due to launch into our warehouse this week, which is a big step up and is hugely costly. But the design kind of focus or, yeah, what we were going for behind those was putting across those messages for us. It's all about as you have less of a voice, as you reach a wider audience, how can you get your packaging or your point of sale to be that voice for you? And like the flyers, for example, that we've designed, they've got a picture of the team on the back and a little thank you message. And then the other side is designed like a newsletter. So we don't get that many made each time, you know, Mm. several thousand so that they are being rotated all, you know, if you, if you ordered a moisturizer and then you used it, uh, the next time you order it, you're going to have a different newsletter. Yeah. Uh, And so all of these other things go into the, you know, it, it goes away from the personal touch and then towards more of a design objective to how you can maintain that touch without that personal touch. And then of course it's finding fulfillment partners that can work in alignment with what you're trying to achieve. And so we've got several, we've got one in Ireland, one in Birmingham, one in America, and this will continue to grow so that again, we're minimizing shipping Mm -hmm. and the carbon footprint, you know, all of these sorts of things have to go into it. And uh, lots of decisions that have to be made on various factors with that as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, there's so much that differs in the world of fulfillment. You know, you've got the data, you've got that kind of whole Mm. technology point, how technology kind of driven are they and Mm. how much is that affecting what you can do, what decisions you can make. But also, quite rightly, as you said, kind of on the packaging, are you working, you know, closely with them in, are they doing exactly what you want? Are they able to provide the personalised packaging? Because, you know, you know, often it is just, you know, third third party. So it's like, you know, it's, it's a brown box and, you know, we do the pick, pack and deliver, but the you know fulfillment companies that can do the additional branding and like you said the flyers and and mm. you know keep on top of that make sure that they're rotated every few months they're the right ones and that's so relevant relevant to what um what industry you're in like what your business is as well you mentioned rotation like that's fundamental in food right yeah and and certain beauty brands depending on on what your kind of ethos is Whereas for us, you know, we're, we're, we are a beauty brand. And so the aesthetics of everything are so important. So that has to come high up on the list. And of course, eco, like I, if there was bubble wrap in it, then, oh God, (laughs) all the effort we've gone to uh, for then it to arrive with that would just be absolutely painful. So they have to have the, the eco piece. They have to be willing to put the effort into the aesthetics of it. Of course, a lot of our products are glass. So there's mm. the fragility element there as well. Yeah. We do actually, I, I didn't mention, we maintain a railway arch facility here in London as well. So we do have someone who manages that. So for things like, I don't know, press send outs or influencer send outs, things that are, are unpaid for, but very mm. important. 
that's nice and easy because I know that I, I've gone through, you know, writing nice little <laughs> notes with him and stuff. So we've still right. got that that kind of uh, <laughs> control too. <laughs> but that's good. You know, you've maintained that ability to where necessary, you can still kind of go back to how you used to do it and kind of have that that really personal message. For sure. Wow. <laughs> there's, I mean, yeah, there's just so much that's kind of involved there. Like you said, different continents, different, um, mm. you know, d- different partners for each kind of part of, of that. I would say that for us, you mentioned tech, that's definitely been something that is very important for us when choosing these partners. Mm. There's there's a lot of technology and it's, and it's helpful because uh, you need that visibility on your stock control when you are dealing with so many different locations and orders on the scale that we are. You know, we're still a relatively young brand, but we are dealing with huge orders at the moment. And unfortunately, because of relatively how young we are, we would love to have 10,000 of each SKU in every single location, but we <laughs> fundamentally cannot be sat on that much money because yeah. we don't have that much money. <laughs> so it's an extremely careful and delicate balancing act um, in order to make sure that we've got enough in play in the different locations that we have. So this technology, you know, QR codes that scan products in and out of the building and you're getting live feedback on what's going in and what's going out all the time, particularly when our order turnaround can be within 24 hours, as you mentioned. Yeah. It's it's very important for us that we have that visibility and that the tech is there to maintain accuracy across all of the different locations so that we can strategize, we can plan, you know, the manufacturing, the supply chain, ordering and ingredients, packaging, etc. All of mm. that has to happen at the right time in order that these warehouses are kept at the right stock levels depending on the forecasting and the upcoming orders that we have. So again, a very simple job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it is so, so important, isn't it? Like you said, kind of all of those things have to work. You know, one thing goes down and the rest of oh, the line yeah. is, you know, and there's... House there's of just, cards. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that speaks to a lot of kind of e-commerce sellers about, you know, overselling on the website and not getting mm. the stock there in time or the knock-on effect of all of those things. And, you know, the end thing is, as you've kind of quite rightly said, kind of throughout this is it's the customer. If they don't get what they ordered or if you have to disappoint them in any way, because anything could have gone wrong anywhere for that to have happened, that's what you're trying to avoid as, mm. as you know, the main thing. And there's just so many ways that that can happen, really. Yeah. So the yeah. accuracy, like you said, tech, so many, so many factors. So, yeah, um, with with that, um, that, that's kind of answered a few of my kind of questions as, as we've gone. And obviously you've said, you know, five years and you've clearly scaled a lot in that time. Has there been any kind of main challenge that you've that you've really faced? I've gone, oh no, like this is something's gone wrong here and then overcome it in those kind of steps operationally? Uh, in short, yes. I think <laughs> my brother, who is the co-founder and I, describe each day going to work as going into battle because it was not an exaggeration to say that we are landed with business critical nightmares every single day and it is just a case of we always try to see humor in every single situation we you know we laugh our way through it and then just rolling your sleeves up and cracking on and 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 solving the problem Mm -hmm. i think we were warned to be fair in the very early days when you are just uh someone who's excited and think they've got the best idea in the world you can be faced with a lot of reality the more questions you ask of people in the industry or mentors or whoever it might be, investors. Um, Mm. And we were told time and time again, 
okay, it's a fantastic idea. We love reutilizing byproducts into skincare. It's not been done before. Like it's really cool. It's trendy. It will prove popular. However, it will not be something that you can scale into a massive brand. So if that's your objective, then just don't even bother. However, we are proving that wrong, but we're proving that wrong through numerous hurdles with the scaling up process. And I would say that the the primary ones for that are regarding the ingredient sourcing, the ingredient processing, and the sort of testing and stability of the formulations that we have to go through that's a lot more challenging than it would Mm -hmm. be if you were just buying a pure ingredient. So we've got better at that as the years have gone on. But I think coffee is probably the best example because we are the first people to really scale that up and the scrubs are so popular. Um, But unlike some of the other repurposed ingredients that come from one source, these are the the coffee that we're collecting come from hundreds and hundreds Mm. of cafes and restaurants. Uh, And then so if something like COVID happens, well, how are you going to keep your product in stock? Because all of a sudden, you are relying on the functioning of other industries in order to secure the byproducts that you use. So that in itself, huge, mega, mega challenge that you're going to have to come, come, you know, overcome to keep your product in stock. My goodness. I didn't think about that. Wow. <laughs> How did, so when coffee shop, when we went into lockdown, a coffee shop shut down, what happened mm. for you? Yeah. Oh, it was, yeah. The start of COVID generally was uh, an unbelievably... <laughs> interesting time for us because what we saw particularly with online was that sales absolutely rocketed you know people were not not wearing makeup so much and taking time for themselves and this focus on self-care and bringing the spa home and all of that Uh, so our sales absolutely soared but then everything else got more difficult so you know the prices went up the lead times tripled the supply chain was infinitely more complex and of course as mentioned lots of the industries like you know the majority of the food industry kind of went on pause for Mm. for months at a time so for us specifically with the coffee we were extremely fortunate for the timing which was that we had just closed a massive collection round literally four days before the first lockdown so at that point we were sat on our maximum levels of stock so you know tens and tens of thousands of units of each variant so that gave us a bit of breathing room to to plan. <laughs> but to be honest, we, we've had to completely change the places that we are. So we, we had hundreds of coffee shop partners, mm. but 60% of those now will never be in operation again. They've permanently yeah. closed. And the rest of them are in locations that don't suit the sorts of retail that's managed to remain open. So take Brick Lane, for example. We had so many coffee shops along Brick Lane uh, that we used to collect from in London. And it's it's like a it's a place that's full of clubs and bars and a bit of a kind of touristy destination. But at the moment, it's absolutely dead. There's no one there. Mm. So instead, we have, we've gone for much more uh, of like a South London residential objective. And we found that places like Dulwich or Clapham, where previously we were not collecting from at all, but that have, you know, bakeries <laughs> that have remained open and incredibly popular uh, are, uh, we've just had to completely re-strategize the, the reasons which we choose the coffee partners that we do mm. and, and basically start from scratch. Lots of mobile trucks, <laughs> you know, food, places that are still doing food deliveries and stuff like that. But yeah, we had to, we had to start from scratch. So that was, wow. that was difficult, but we were very lucky that we had just, 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 just finished around. So we had that time 
whilst that stock was selling to Mm. figure out the next round. But we did go out of stock for a period and we've had to make sacrifices over the last years, the last year, sorry. So sometimes the the lids might not have been black aluminium anymore because we couldn't get them sprayed black. They had to be silver. And yes, that's a bit that's a bit painful for, for, for me, who is so focused on the aesthetic and the visual and the branding and the design. But equally, if it means that the product can sell for that month rather than being out of stock, then of course, you know, something's got to give. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I mean, <laughs> that's amazing. And I think that definitely spe- speaks to the true meaning of being a flexible, reactive brand. I mean, you had a pivot, you had to pivot. Yeah, in that yeah. Time. So um, yeah, that's, that's kind of great for the timing of things. And I mean, glad that, that that kind of happened that way that you were able to get that, that little bit of time to take a step back and strategically go, right, the whole, all of this is going to change. We're going to need to source from elsewhere. So I don't imagine a lot of brands will have had to face that particular no. issue, which is amazing. Um, that I mean that you that you have kind of worked it through and and that happened. Brilliant. Do you so as you were scaling? I mean, this is a, obviously happened in the last year mm. out of the the five that you've mm. had. How long originally when you first started? You know, from from that kind of concept, what sort of time frame would you have said that 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 you managed to get set up in a way that you felt like you were ready to scale or, you know, all of these things were sort of in place or as I get, I mean, you already said that you feel like every day is a battle <laughs> going into battle, so maybe uh, it's, it's still going on. <laughs> it's, it's a great question. I do think to an extent, yeah, you do face a new challenge each day. But for us, I would say that at the two, two year mark was a real turning point for us. So mm. I think people, people do starting out businesses differently. Some yeah. people will research for years uh, we did not do that. We just had our idea and very quickly moved into making our products and selling our products for numerous reasons. Uh, but what, of course, that that does do is it means that you do inevitably make mistakes at the start and they're mistakes that you might have to undo. So we actually went through a rebrand two years in, which was the whole reason for doing that. We kept the same concept and the exact same products. It was a change of name and it was a change of design so that we could scale up. So we had operated for the first two years selling one product, which was the coffee scrubs. And to be fair, as mentioned, they are our most challenging product for numerous reasons. But what we realized quite quickly was that, you know, what worked for a one range brand didn't work for uh, a brand that was going to be selling, you know, across the across the seas, uh, much farther afield, with potentially twenty or thirty different product ranges. So we had to completely go back to square one and uh, plan for consistency, you know, hierarchy of messaging, in order that we can scale up. Similarly, that first two years with manufacturing was a time where we could experiment push things, try things, and then just start again when needed over and over again until we found processes that worked that could then just be multiplied. So yeah, we took two years basically to to make all of the mistakes that we uh, needed to make by pushing things in different directions and trying out different things and then being very confident and comfortable not only in the the concept uh, or the branding the processes, manufacturing, formulations, products, all of that, we were then very, very confident, mm. went away, rebranded, and then hit the ground running and just absolutely went for it. So that's that's kind of how we did it. 
And it's definitely worked out well for us because with the majority of things we can say, okay, yeah, well, we tried that and we tried that and we tried that. Yeah. And and this is what we got um, that works. And now it is just literally a case of multiplying <laughs> to meet demand, which is what we're doing right now. And we've managed to do that. So thankfully we've proved all of these investors and mentors wrong <laughs> by by taking that time in the beginning and not being afraid to start over it time and time again, which we did have to do. But it's that that's now why we get people trying to find out how we do it every yeah. single day, because no one else has succeeded in that. And I guess that does just come back to, you know, to character and, and having that ability to have an unbelievably thick skin and take, <laughs> take the setbacks, um, laugh about it and just try again. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, yourself and your brother have that team and, and that mentality that is just let's let's start again let's do it again well you know okay that didn't work let's try it and I think Mm. like you said that that period of two years has really enabled you to not only you know test and and experience the things that don't work but Mm. also have that real confidence in the product and the way that you do things now is because you had that time testing it and you learned and you know all of that like that kind of mentality in the the whole trying and entrepreneurship vibe and everything that happened in those two years so it's really really interesting and kind of a really a good story and and a way of approaching it really even though you might not have felt that at the time and just sort of mm. thought oh well let's try the next thing let's try this yeah I think I, I I hear so many brands that just go through such long periods of research and I think okay of course everyone needs to research like you can't mm. plunge in blindfolded and hope for the best but then equally <laughs> You don't know until you do. So just get on with it. Just start and then refine. That's that's how we've done it. So we just, we make, we do, we sell, and then we are willing to continually evolve it and to continually refine it and make it better and better and better as as we go, rather than this, you know, huge long period at the start where you're essentially doing nothing, but thinking that you're getting yourself ready. And then Mm. you might start it and either no one will like it or no one will care or you'll face these issues that you never could have foreseen, uh, in which case you've wasted time and you're back to square one. Yeah, that's a real a real good kind of um, point to end on, actually, that, you know, it's it's sort of all about keeping going and that sort of camaraderie and (laughs) working out what works, especially for that kind of, you know, very, very young companies just starting out. So I'm sure your story will be a real kind of inspiration to a lot of people. I mean, continuing that that theme of, of inspiration and guidance, is there any resources or books or podcasts or anything that you look to that kind of help you that you would recommend to, to listeners? Oh, great question. So I feel like my kind of core guidance team are my, particularly my mum and my sister. So I live with my sister and her boyfriend. So the within the last year, particularly, that's that's kind of your go-to stress board <laughs> for answering <laughs> or helping out with um, all of the the daily struggles that we have and, and the hurdles that we face. So they're my number one. Um, I've I've massively felt the absence of my my friends um, because again I'm I'm just a super social person. I'm I'm much more of a get out there and and chew your friend's ear off for two hours to solve your problems <laughs> than than kind of um, I guess reading books and podcasts and stuff. That said, in the early days, I did absorb information as as much as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've I've read Richard Branson's books and Adam <laughs> Sugar's books and all of those kind of classic character building, are you ready to do this uh, <laughs> sorts of books, which I do feel are definitely valuable because mm. no one, you, you can know your your brand or your business or your, your idea as much as you think 
you you do but it's the test of character which i think is something that um doesn't get spoken about quite so much and then in terms of books and podcasts and stuff i mean i'm a massive louis through fan so i've listened to his podcast <laughs> yeah that's not necessarily guidance that's more <laughs> i guess work-life balance because that's one mm. thing i hugely struggle with is um you know i, I work too much essentially <laughs> particularly difficult in the last year when there's no division between work yeah, and home absolutely. Um, so when it comes to the resources that i you know whether it's television podcasts or books i i like to keep it non-work related so mm-hmm. my friend the other day gave me the dolly alderton book <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know things like that keeping it light-hearted and not necessarily work related but i must say in the era of social media and with the platform that we've built mm-hmm. the pressure on us as a brand to comment on big world topics has definitely increased within the last year particularly as people are, are spending more time on social media right. so i have i've sort of pivoted towards looking at different and i hate the term in itself but influencers or people who mm. choose to use their platforms built either off a personal brand or an actual brand to speak about important topics so people like jamila jamil for example is someone who i love following and and i actually look to to a lot of these people who take social media as a as a platform to speak on more important topics i guess because mm. that's something that we've had to do a lot of as a brand in recent times. So yeah, you can get inspiration and guidance from all over the place, uh, yeah. whether it's friends, family, uh, I mean, I guess television, um, social media, wherever it might be. And I, and I always try to try to do that, I guess. But then equally, I get my sanity from, from socializing and from the people closest to me. So I'm looking forward to the summer ahead. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Things opening up again. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that's, you make some really, really good points there that, you know, firstly the, the balance between, you know, not, not everything you consume has got to be to do with work, but there is information everywhere. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, yeah. and, and yeah, kind of keeping it back to, back to basics and, you know, the people that you live with and, and that you, mm-hmm. you talk to the most to, to kind of, like you say, bring bring back your sanity and use yeah. it as a sanity board. I think that's um that's that's really kind of yeah core to to kind of getting through <laughs> and maintaining maintaining good mental health as well. So mm, absolutely cool. great. Um, that's awesome. But thank you so much for for coming on the podcast and talking to me. Um, there's some some real gems in there. I'm sure everybody will find really really useful. It's been my pleasure. Thanks again. <laughs>